0: Yeah. Hey guys, uh, it's a bonus podcast. It's a Sunday podcast. I should probably get in this Monday morning, but it's with my guest today. uh, My old manager, my good friend Barry Katz. You've probably heard people talk about Barry on this podcast. Barry is, uh, he's got a legend that follows him around Hollywood. He's an interesting guy. He's a manager to Dane, to Jay Moore, to, he was to Dane. I think they stopped, but he's uh, he's managed everyone. We talk about that on the podcast, but he's got a movie coming out this May 31st called I Killed JFK. If you want to see it, it's a wide-release it's one night only. It's on the thirty first, so you have to go to the thirty first. He knows who killed JFK, and he has it in his movie. It is really fascinating. I saw the trailer. Uh, we talk about that in the beginning part of the podcast, and then we just digress and talk about um, clients he worked with. We talk about Dane. We talk about uh, everyone. It really is a great, fantastic podcast. Barry is a is a wealth of comedy uh, knowledge. He really is. He was my manager for ten years. We talk about people talking shit about him on my podcast he's a great guy and so support his movie if you go to ikilljfk.com you can scroll down to get tickets and then click get tickets and it will pop up a, a list of whatever state you're in and where the movie's playing around you and it's playing everywhere it's a really interesting way of doing it to be honest with you I kind of wish I did that for my hour special, just do a wide release. And there's a, like, literally, I read off the list of cities in California, and it is down the coast. He's got it in just about every big city in California, and it's all across this country. So May 31st, go see I Killed JFK, um, Barry Katz's movie, and we talk about it at the front, and then we just, yeah, whatever. Okay, I covered that. Um, this week, Wheeler Walker Jr. is on the podcast. Wheeler Walker Jr. It's a steamer, everybody. It's good. Uh, I love, uh, man, it's a good podcast. I'll be releasing that Tuesday evening at uh, 6 p.m. L.A. time. That's when I release them. I release them at 6 p.m. And then so they're available for you Wednesday morning, first thing in the morning. I also like that because I can track my numbers of how many people downloaded it in the entire day. Because that's when my my Libsyn starts over. Uh, I'm in Hawaii right now. I'm with the family. We're having a blast. We're in Honolulu. I have a show Wednesday night, same night Barry's movies premiering. So no one in Hawaii, please see Barron's movie. Come see me at the Blue Note, two shows. I got a 6.30 show and a 9 o'clock show, 9.30 show. I think, something like that. The Blue Note, uh, you can come out and see me. And then uh, the week after that, San Francisco, uh, the 9th and 10th of June. Sacramento, the 11th of June. Uh, The next following week is Kansas City Improv. Uh, The following week after that is Orlando Improv, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And then Sunday, I go up to New York for Skanks Fest and... Ooh, I don't want to let it out yet, but someone—I'm really excited. I'm doing someone's TV show that I've always wanted to do that I've been talking about a lot. I'm not going to tell you who, but uh, I'm really excited. I'm going to be a guest on someone's TV show, and then doing some press. I'm probably going to stick around New York for uh, for the whole week and uh, and and do some interviews and and, you know, I kind of want—I want Colin Quinn on my podcast. I got did David Tell and Tom Segura. That's coming out uh, the following week. It's Wheeler Walker Jr., he's got an album. Why am I okay, you you'll hear it all. Uh Tom, Tom Sker and Dave's, uh and Dave Attell, his this podcast coming out. Louis Louis J. Gomez coming out. Um I got Mickey Gall backloaded. I've just got so many friends that have projects like Barry, like Wheeler, that that are, are time sensitive that I'm trying to do the most for everybody. But that's it. God, I love fucking Hawaii. I really do love Hawaii. I I I wish I could live here. It's just so gorgeous. I seem to be grounded when I'm here. Although we did just punish Isla for throwing popcorn all over the. We didn't punish her. We just raised our. Didn't even raise our voice. Just changed our tone. My parenting skills are so suspect. You know, quite honestly, I, I wonder. I don't, I don't ever yell at my kids. I don't. We. By the way, Louis J Gomez and I talk about this later, but uh, that's not today's podcast. If I don't raise my voice, I don't yell at them, I get frustrated and have panic attacks and I just kind of walk away. Like, I'm, I'm not, like, I try, I try to be a soothing parent. Georgia had a panic attack today going uh, snorkeling because her mask wasn't working and water was coming in her mask and her, it wasn't stopping it. It's loosening up, daddy. It's loosening up. And I just try to breathe and go, baby, it's okay. I've been there. That happened to me when I went scuba diving in Fiji. I th- I, my, my thing's, my thing's fogging up. What about it? What about it? So, uh, but then Isla, everyone's burnt out. We went snorkeling over in some big cove and, uh, Isla's just spent, I can, they don't want to go out to Waikiki tonight. They want to stay in the room and just get room service for lunch and for, uh, and for dinner. And so everyone wants to sit in the room and I'm just like, well, what do I go to? Go to the Tiki bar, have a. Uh, Tito's and Soto with a splash of pineapple juice to make it feel like it's Hawaiian. I want to go to Arnold's Beach Bar. Hope, uh was posted pictures of um, him at Arnold's Beach Bar. And he said it's him and Roseanne's favorite beach bar. And so I kind of want to go there and go get a few Mai Tais. God, I love Hawaii. I could live here, man. I could live in an island. That's one of the things, by the way, a long time ago. The podcast is going to start soon. Just allow me this. A long time ago, uh, just skip forward to 15 minutes or whatever if you don't like this shit a long time ago I, I played tennis with this guy marty and he was like listen you better know what you and your wife's goals are at the end of your retirement because if they're not similar you're gonna end up getting divorced and leanne has no interest in being by the ocean <laughs> i, I talked to someone about that on some podcast No, oh, i'm fighting the kid she just wants to be in the mountains i could do the mountains too i'm reading a book about this uh this guy who um went out in the woods in maine for 20 some odd years and didn't speak to anyone he was a hermit and so i'm thinking about doing a solitude retreat where i go out and i don't speak to anyone by the way i have a show that might be encompassing that we'll see how that goes all right aloha everybody mahalo for listening i love when by the way i love when uh hawaii is the only place that i'll use the language i don't do it in in, when i'm in mexico but in, in hawaii i'll go mahalo i feel like it's respectful all right, everybody. The podcast is starting. Barry Katz, uh, my former manager, my good friend. Uh, you've heard him on the podcast. He's been on the podcast. He's got a fantastic podcast called The Industry Standard. We talk about that. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll see you guys on tour. Go watch Barry's movie on May 31st. Have a great weekend, everybody. Or have a great week. Have a great beginning of the week. And I'll see you Wednesday with Will Walker Jr. But right now, Barry Katz. This is Barry Katz. Hello. Here, sit right here. Yeah, yeah, sit right there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. I shoot video now, Barry. I'm stepping my game up. I remember doing the, mon- the podcast with you in Montreal, and uh, and you had like a whole production team. Move- move Stand that way. We'll- here, I'll sit this way. You can spin it whatever way you want. Yeah. Yeah. Want go a bit yeah, It's perfect. Yeah, typical Barry, micromanaging everything. <laughs> do you guys mind if I... I'm going to eat pretzels during this meeting. <laughs> this is Where's your video? It's right there. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's make sure your head's in it. Holy shit. I forgot how tall you were. Yeah, you're fine. I made it. I
1: made the cut. You're going to do a Facebook Live, too? See, there. Look. Light up the back. Holy crap. This is incredible. Well,
0: this podcast is... Is... Uh, is... Make, I'm making more money on this than I was at Travel Channel. So. Cor- Corolla esque. I don't know about Corolla esque, but I'm definitely a, a Corolla first year of the Man Show esque. <laughs>
1: do you do it on your own, or do yeah, you do it, it with all somebody? myself?
0: I'm am I'm, I'm I'm a very different client that when than when you met me. Well, I would hope so. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm now I'm extremely uh, I I'm a little bit of a bully. I, I, uh, I know what I want and I just do it. And so I wanted to, this podcast was like the first thing that I did where it was just me and I started it myself and I learned all the stuff. I learned how to record and put up video and post it to Libsyn and get my numbers. And I saw my numbers and then, you know, the best thing about, about what's going on in the business is there's such a transparency between comics. You know, comics are so much friends now that we tell each other our download numbers and how much money we're making and how much money we should make. And if we're not making enough, we go switch over to my ad agent.
1: And uh, why do you think that is? Why do you think comedians are sharing the information? How does that help them? I think because television went away.
0: It hasn't gone away totally. But I think for the most part, for the majority of us, there you know, what was a landscape where you needed managers and agents more is now gone, and it's now it's like everyone's got their own pirate ship and everyone's making their own money and people are willing to say no more I think the power of no the power of no is insane i st- I started saying no to just about everything I was like all I really want to do is my podcast and my stand up I have a scripted series that I'm working on, but I'm doing it because it's my friend and I trust him and uh working on selling the machine as a movie and uh but i but I'm like, I don't have a ton of, you know, I don't have a ton of space for other shit. I think when you're younger, you go in and you're like, I just wanna like I, I, like, I want to get a manager. I want to get a deal. I want to get to Montreal. There were like nine options when I started this business. There were probably less when you started the business. There was fire in the wheel. I want to start off before because i know this is when all my listeners are listening we started yeah we started we started holy shit <laughs> i want to start off with your new project all right it's gonna shock you i know it's uh apparently you found the person who killed kennedy <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's crazy Bert. i i just i want to share this with your audience it's like you know you, you start things start happening with you over time um for everybody listening you know it's it's not what happens now that happens now it's what you do now that affects what happens six months and a year from now and you have life. that
0: sign right above my thing what do you wish you did today what do you five years from now what will you wish you did today Amazing. i think of that all the time and i get on my treadmill and i put notebooks and i write jokes i write ideas and i feel like i have a list of tv shows i do and then uh you know like ones I'd want to create but uh and and movies I want to write and, I put, and that's one of the things I did that I put that up there I was like I want to write a book I just realized one of the differences between you and I what's that treadmill anyway so you said something a long time ago that is always stuck in my head there's two types of people i want to do your impression of you bunny there's two types of people you always said that that when when the van wilder thing went down you said there's two types of people in this business people who work and people who sue pick which one you want to be and then the, the other thing you said was there's two types of people people who lose weight and people who don't congratulations that's right, and you said that to me when I lost when so I got down to 186 pounds. And you're like, you go, you don't understand this. There's two types of people: people who lose weight and people who talk about losing weight. And you lost it. That's right. Yeah, and that's a big uh, difference. And you, but one of the things I know about you is that when when I first met you, I remember you were having a Shirley Temple with vodka in it. Well, I don't know if it was a Shirley. I think it was vodka and grapefruit juice. Maybe that's what it was. And you said, uh, you said, what about Barry? I remember, I'll never forget that. What about Barry? I said, what do you mean? And you said, I don't know. I want to do things. And you're like, I've made a lot of people famous. I want to do things. And now you're doing that. I mean, your podcast is fantastic. Oh, I want to nice. talk to you about that. We'll talk about that in a second. Thanks, man. But uh, it really is fantastic. <laughs> it is. It means a lot coming from you. Believe it's an me. industry standard. Your yes. intros are long as shit.
1: I've cut them down a little bit. Oh. <laughs> And you know, I made Bert cry three times in Montreal. The first time was just from the cold open of speaking it so long. You know, I was like, God, God I can't, I can't take it." But, uh, but
0: the um, the only thing that sucks about me doing everything is I always look at the levels. I always look at the recording. I'm like, "Good, good, good."
1: You know, the bad thing about about a park podcast is like taking a meeting with somebody or being on a date, and somebody looks at their watch. Yeah. In a podcast, they're always looking at the time and the levels, and you think, "My God, am I am I am I sucking here? What's happening?" <laughs> Uh, but based on every person that's been a guest on your show talking about me, I'd say that I'm, I'm, I'm either doing really, really horribly bad or else uh, I'm doing okay.
0: No, I, told, I just told a story about you on a podcast. <laughs> I got really upset that you shared um, an analogy you gave to me that was so pivotal. It was like a life lesson. And I said, this is the great thing about Barry. And I told the Hideo Nomo. <laughs> and then I think Jeff Dye was like, he said the same shit to me. <laughs> I go, fucking Barry. What? It's like finding out a girl you fu- a, a guy you fucked has told everyone, no, I can speak spine language.
1: <laughs> now, one thing I'll just share with you to play devil's advocate. It wasn't Advoc- Tobler. It was Jeff Dye. To play devil's advocate with you. Yeah. How easy is it to say after somebody says something, Yeah, he said the same thing to me. Yeah. If you're having hard feelings about somebody. Touche. Touche. Let's talk about your project, though. (laughs) We'll get
0: to all this. We'll get to all this. But I know right now, I know my numbers, and this is where no one's turning it
1: off. They're like, am I staying? All right. So let's talk about the project. Okay. You found the man who killed JFK. That is correct. And I just want to share what happened. I was getting into it uh so what happens is when you're somebody like Bert or myself and you've been in the business a while, things come to you. People come to you with things. So you get a call from reputable people and they say, will you take this meeting? Will you listen to what this guy has to say? And if it's somebody you respect, you do it. So this person called me who shall remain nameless said a guy's going to come to your uh, office. He's going to show you something on his laptop. Uh, he's not going to talk to you. He's not going to look at you. You're not going to see him again. He's going to close up the laptop and leave. And so the guy comes in, true to form, same thing, opens up the laptop. And, you know, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a comedy guy. I started as a stand-up comic. I work with comedians. I do comedy projects. Uh, the, even the documentaries I did, the last one I did was with Tom Hanks and Amy Schumer, Misery Loves Comedy, uh, Larry David, Judd Apatow. You so, you had more <laughs>
0: deals than anyone representing comics probably in history
1: so that's what i do and so this comes in and i'm looking at all these different interviews and raw footage that's really really old of people talking about the kennedy assassination who were there who were a part of it people who have been killed people who died mysteriously and some people who were still alive one of which was a guy who was in prison god knows for 40 50 years who is the only living person who ever admitted to killing JFK. And I was just blown away. And I, I'm not, a, I don't no dog in this fight. I'm not somebody like, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are conspiracy theorists. They wake up every day, you know, this happened with 9-11. You know, what happened here on the moon? Did they really land? I wasn't that way. I just love stories. And for, you know, as well as I do, The greatest thing that anybody can have is a story, a great book. You love it, has a great story, great song, great story, great movie, great story, great podcast, great story. If you're a guy who's single and you're going out on a date tonight and you don't have a great fucking story, you're not going to have a great time. And so I love stories and these people's stories were unbelievable, untapped Nobody's heard them before because in every textbook it says that Lee Harvey Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah. So I want to keep going with this. So I search for who has the rights to this footage. I finally find the guy. He's in Amsterdam. I fly to Amsterdam. I meet with the guy. He's got... I love this because it's
0: got a 1970s, 1960s spy. Just your story about the making of the movie is as good as a movie's going to be.
1: You can't even believe it. So I go there, and I'm sure all of your audience knows this. You ever met somebody who, let's say, was like, let's say a race car driver, and he he has a $300,000 car but he lives in a trailer in a trailer park. This guy in Amsterdam was a guy who literally didn't have much. He put his whole life into this, and he got all these interviews, and he had various documentaries in various states of finishing. And I met with him, and I said, listen, I love these stories. I want to help you get the word out. I want to do this. I want to take all the footage you have, and I want to be in a situation where I can edit it into a movie centering on this one guy who is the only person who's admitted to killing Kennedy? And he agreed. And I spent the last four years working on the documentary, putting it together. Now, just and, out of curiosity, did you did you have to pay him? Did you have to sign a contract and go? You're not mess. I, you're, I'm your guy. I'm a great negotiator, as you know. I signed the contract with him that we're tied at the hip, and uh, he participates in the film. <laughs> But I'm not going to sh- divulge my negotiating style only when I'm doing one of your deals. <laughs> and so, but let me keep going. So, essentially, for those of you uh, who don't know this in the audience, about because this stuff isn't really readily available to people. The first thing I want to tell your audience is if the assassination happened today, Lee Harvey Oswald would never have been. Arrested. He would never have been indicted. He would never have been shot in prison. No one would ever say that he did it. Because today we have YouTube and 17,000 news organizations and video. Yeah. When Isaiah Thomas swore at the fan from the Boston Celtics, it was on somebody's phone. He was fine because they had the videotape. When the guy was in the elevator, I think it was Ray Rice, yeah. he hit the girl in the elevator. That's the only reason he was convicted. The college kid, Mixon, he hit the girl videotape. Yeah, What we had as a nation and a government, we had the Sapruder film, which, by the way, even with YouTube, the most watched short film in the history of the world, that 26 seconds... Of that motorcade route in Dallas. Okay, I, I, first time I saw that, I was with Matt Frost, Vincent Nastri, and Bobby
0: Kelly. And Bobby had a documentary on this proof film. I'd never heard of it, and I, I back into the left was was is that the the phrase something like that. back yeah. into the left, back into the left, back into the left, back into the left. And it's it's, it's a proof film for those. I think everyone knows what it is, but if you're younger, it is it is the
1: video of him getting shot john f kennedy get shot yeah, there was a the, in dallas just to set it up for because a lot of your audiences this happened before they were born but it is the greatest unsolved murder mystery in history and so for those of you who don't know um you know kennedy was going to dallas i, I want to set this up for your audience okay Believe it or not, and what I learned through this documentary is that there are enormous similarities between Donald Trump and President Kennedy, and I'm going to lay them out for you, okay? I can't wait to hear this. All right. This is why – but the only difference you don't know is because today, again, the media, all-encompassing. Back then, there's three channels and some newspapers. Yeah. And so people didn't know the facts around Kennedy like we know now. So I'll just lay it out to you. <clears throat> the Chicago mob hated Kennedy because his father promised Sam Giacana in Chicago, the head of the mob there, that he was going to leave them alone if they helped Kennedy win Illinois, which was a pivotal state that could help him win the election against Richard Dixon. They won the election. They won Illinois. The first thing that Kennedy does when he gets in the office, he hires his brother, Robert Kennedy. He's the attorney general. Yeah. What does Robert Kennedy do? He goes after the Chicago mob. That's the first enemy he had. Okay? Yeah. Second enemy he had, Cuba. The way he handled the Bay of Pigs invasion back then and the Cuban Missile Cry, all the things happening then. I don't want to get into it. Your audience can look it up. Cuba was an enemy the country as a country we were trying to figure out ways to kill Castro in the 60s and part of what I'm going to talk to you about uh, uh, later on is because I interviewed Lee Harvey Oswald's uh, lover and she was down there and she knew the plot and the plot was to create some kind of um, poison that he would die from and And at one point they wanted his beard to fall out to emasculate him exactly. More enemies. The CIA was his enemy because he was trying to restructure the CIA. J Edgar Hoover. The FBI. J Edgar Hoover was getting older. He wanted to restructure that, um, and and then with Russia, the ties to Russia weren't weren't well as well, and there were people going back and forth. So he had all these enemies. Uh, Missiles being pointed at the United States from Cuba. Seven days in November, is that what it is? That's right. Missiles being pointed from North Korea to us. Trump has enemies with the CIA, the FBI. Yeah. All these factions are against him as well. And so there's a lot of similarities. Now, if Trump, God forbid, were, were assassinated and somebody came out and said he had ties to the FBI, would anybody be shocked? No. No. But back then in 63, nobody understood what was going on except inside the government. You had to read a paper. <clears throat> you, had you had to read a to paper, read or watch and, the news. And even then it wasn't there. So this is a Bruder film, which your audience is going to watch maybe as they're listening, and you can slow it down in slow motion. The videotape doesn't lie. And just to share with you what happened, um, after the assassination, within an hour or two, they found Oswald in a... Um, sort of a a movie theater during the day with very few people in it and they arrest him there. There was no witness that saw him in the sixth floor of the six book depository They didn't catch him running out no he was in a movie theater just waiting for a contact or something and they knew where he was they got him and he, that's why when he went to the police station and you'll see video if you search for it where he says i don't know what i'm here for i'm a patsy i'm a patsy and when you look at him saying that you can tell what's happening verified of course by a lot of different people yeah but What the government did in LBJ, who was power-hungry and wanted to be president, they formed the Warren Commission. Earl Warren didn't want to head the Warren Commission because he knew right from wrong. Yeah. But he did it anyway under pressure. And they determined that the president was killed from one bullet, one shooter from the back. But if you go to the videotape, which the public didn't have back then, only the government had it. Only the government had the Zapruder film. The Zapruder film. And so if you slow it down, and if you're listening to this and watch it right now, slow it down frame by frame, and you're going to see the limo going before the street sign, the huge street sign. He's smiling. He's waving. He gets past the street sign. If you freeze frame it there, you'll see his hands are going up to his throat. Which, if you're a doctor out there listening, you know that only happens two ways. It happens if you're hit in the back by the spine or if, you, or if something's happening in your throat and you're choking, which actually happened because the bullet went through his back and through his throat. Yeah. You can see his wife, Jackie, saying, are you okay? You can see Connolly, Governor Connolly in the front, turning around and asking, are you okay? But also, simultaneously, he was hit. He got hit in the arm. He got hit through the chest and in the arm. And on the wrist or something, yeah. Yes. And then if you slow it down even more, frame by frame, you'll see that Kennedy gets hit on the top of the head, and there's a spray that comes from the top of his head, and his head goes forward. And then a split second later, he gets hit from the front that blows his head back.
0: Yeah, so it's... it's and it's,
1: so, yeah. but the Warren Commission said it was one bullet... They've killed Kennedy from a single shooter from the back. But that's not the case because videotapes don't lie.
0: And that's almost I, – I would venture to say that's almost undisputed. I don't think there's anyone that still believes
1: it was once one bullet. Believe it or not, this is what's so sad about the world – At least half of the people in this country believe that Lee Harvey Oswald was the killer of JFK. It's what's in the history books. It's what the media has sold us for, you know, close to 50 years. And one of the fascinating things, because I got to do a panel afterwards. You know, when you go see this documentary, which is May 31st, uh, this Wednesday, it's one night only. I'm posting this Sunday morning. No, Sunday morning. Sun, I'm, post, I'm from Hawaii, Sunday morning. Got it. So you go to ikilljfk.com, you'll see a theater near you, and you'll be able to go, but it's only one night only, so I, I'm not doing it any other night. So, but when you go to see this, you're going to see a panel discussion after. A, a couple of weeks ago, I did a panel with five of the last remaining living experts on the JFK assassination who were around then. I did Gordon Ferry, who was the national security advisor for five presidents. I did Jim Mars, who was a journalist in 63, covering things in Dallas. I did Judith Very Baker, like I said, Oswald Lover. I did uh, two guys who wrote uh, the definitive books on the JFK assassination, Barr McClellan, And I did also, um, Zach Shelton, who was the FBI special agent investing in the case, put this guy in jail who actually is the only admitted killer. And some of the things they said were just shocking about this situation. Uh, the first thing, the guy who interviewed, um, I'm sorry, the guy who put the killer in jail, uh, I said to him, do you believe what he said? And he said, He said, of course I believe it. You know, Oswald didn't take a shot. I, I believe that this guy's story is 100%. It checks out. Everything he says checks out. But he said something really profound. He said, but Barry, what does it matter who the person is who fired the, the gun that killed the president? Does it really matter to anybody anymore? Any crackpot loser can kill anybody anywhere in the world. What really I'm excited about discussing here and what your documentary discussed is who had the power to cover it up for 54 years. That is fascinating. And the answer to that without divulging a lot of the film Is this, no matter what anybody in your audience believes, whether they believe Oswald took the shot, whether they believe it was the Russians, the Cubans, the CIA, the FBI, LBJ, whatever they believe, think about this for a second and this will blow you away. You can get somebody to kill somebody, presumably the mob in Chicago. You could get somebody from Cuba or Russia to do whatever, but... Does the mob have the power to alter the autopsy and call Bethesda? Do the Russians or Cubans have the power to call the Warren Commission and say, "Hey, listen, write this eight hundred pound, re- eight hundred page report and put it out there as a lone gunman"? Yeah. And the answer is no. No. So then, who has the power? It has to be either the head of the CIA, the head of the FBI, or Lyndon Baines Johnson, or all three together. There's nobody else who can change those things. Who can, a guy who's an assistant in a cubicle, you know, in 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 Congress, doesn't have the power to call and make those decisions. And that's what's bone crushing about what we learn and how it all went down and how it all happened. And I want to share one more thing with your audience that really fucked me up. This national security advisor that I interviewed, hes you know, these people are not crazy people. They're not mentally deranged. I'm interviewing people that are well-educated, well-connected. I'm not sitting down with people who have a needle in their arm behind a dumpster. This guy has been in various forms of government for 40 years. And this is what he said, that, and I hope I'm not divulging too much because there's so much in this documentary. He said, Barry, when Donald Trump says he wants to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? November 22nd, 1963, Barry, and I know, I know because I was a part of this world. It was like a party. It was like a social event in Dallas. People flew in from all over the world to see Kennedy get assassinated. He just was one of the few people who didn't know what was going to happen. Holy shit. So I compiled all this stuff, found footage, all these old interviews. I, I went through two and a half hours of interviews of this guy in prison and took his confession, what he was talking about, and how the events tied in. Where he talked about where he was a runner for the mob, and he was 23, and he was working with guys in their 40s, Johnny Roselli and Chuck Nicoletti. Well documented. You could read about anywhere. anyway. Everybody knew about them. They were the two, you know, guys under Giancano. And they were going to Dallas to be the shooters there, and they were working in cahoots with the CIA, And it's well documented that the CIA flew mob people and Cubans into Dallas that day. So the night before, this killer drives one of them to a diner where they meet Jack Ruby, meets Jack Ruby for the first time. For your audience who doesn't know, Jack Ruby is a guy who owned the local strip club and who went into the police station Two days after the assassination, and shot and killed Lee Harvey Oswald. What did he say when he shot Lee Harvey Oswald? I don't exactly know what he said. Uh,
0: he said something. Something. Oh, I. I'm amazed at how much I know about this. Like I, it, you know, it's such a fascinating subject to me. But I think what's interesting while you're looking. <laughs>
1: Thank you, may I have another. it'll come up. Keep going. So what's fascinating about Lee Harvey Oswald for your audience, this guy is surrounded by naked women and cash every day of his life. Yeah. Yet he's walking into a police station. And killing a guy, which means, ah, I guess my life's over. I'll give up the girls and the money, and I'll do that. What later people found out was that he used to work with Al Capone when he was a young kid in Chicago. He had ties to the Chicago mob. Yeah. But getting back to what I was trying to say about this and everything that was happening, all these events just come together in a way that just – it's. You, it's undisputable evidence that the public has never seen before, and that's why I was so fascinated by it. That's why the story is just so incredible when you look at what happened. And all these people that are interviewed, they don't know each other technically. Some do, but to to merge all their stories together and to be in a situation where everything comes together, it would be impossible. But... This is the way it is. Another thing that's factual, and I want to get back to them. So so this, I think I should continue with the story about this guy. So he's a runner for the mob. He goes and meets Jack Ruby. Yeah. Jack Ruby gives them an envelope. In the envelope, they open it up. It's a diagram of Dealey Plaza. The route for Kennedy was changed at the last minute. Why was it changed? It was changed. So they gave them a diagram. Wow. Okay, that's when he saw Jack Ruby. That's the only time he saw Jack Ruby that week. Then the next morning, he's scheduled to meet both of these guys, the shooters. His his job is to calibrate their weapons and drive them. Mm -hmm. He gets them to Dealey Plaza. Only one of them shows up, Chuck Nicoletti. He says, where's where's Johnny? He said "Uh, the CIA called them today. They called off the hit. Uh, he's not going to be a shooter. He's like, well, why are we here? Because fuck them. I, I came here to do a job and I'm going to do a job. Do you want to be my backup? And this was an impressionable kid. He said, of course I'll be your backup. I would be honored. Uh, uh, he said, good. I'm going to be in the Dal tech building, not the Texas school book depository, the Dal tech building. Uh, Where would you be backup? And they walked around and they went behind the grassy knoll. And he said, this is where I'd be. This is the best place I can pass myself off as somebody works at the train station here. Uh, Nobody's going to bother me. Uh, It's a perfect shot. And they look and they say, well, you got that street sign that's an obstruction. How are you going to do you only have one shot? And he's like, I only need one shot. I'm a backup. I'm only here if if you don't hit him in the head. And he said, Okay, and, and that's what happened. And it's interesting, the guy, the national security advisor, Gordon Ferry, I said to him, Does that sound accurate? And and he seemed so young, twenty three, and the guy looked at me, and again, this guy's like eighty, and he said, At seventeen I was a sniper and I would kill you in a second. No question. The <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so and so that's the story. And so when you see and slow down the footage, you'll see the shot to Kennedy's head, at the top of his head, and then you'll see the shot. And the killer, it's fascinating. He says when he got back to the car with uh, Chuck Nicoletti, he was furious at him. He said, why, why did you shoot him? Why did you do that? He's like, well... I had him in my sights and I could tell he was hit. I didn't know how badly, but he hadn't been hit in the head. And as I'm pulling the trigger, right when I'm pulling the trigger, he gets hit in the head, but it's too late. I'm pulling the trigger. Yeah. He says, that's why I missed. I was aiming for his eye, but I hit him in the temple. Wow. And so it's fascinating. Another fascinating thing that could you could never make up is when he killed people, this guy, he would take the shell casing out and he would bite down on it and create a, a, a dent in the shell casing and leave it wherever he was. And he did the same thing there. He said he did in his confessions, and that shell casing was found. Nobody talks about it with bite marks in it. Why would he bite? Why would he bite? It was himself? just his, it was just his little, you know, how you see movies where some people, Hey, let's leave a rose petal on the body or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that yeah. was
0: just his thing.
1: The, the, the wet bandits from, uh, yeah. from home alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, and so this project just, just, it just every turn, every time I watch it and you know me mm-hmm. and you, you've known me my whole, uh, career. Um, and, You know this for a fact. How many times in my life have I said that I'm really, really, really proud of a piece of work that I've done? I'm on the hardest. I'm so hard on myself. Yeah. But this thing, just every time I watch it, and when you work on a documentary, you see something like hundreds of times. And every time I watch this, I am completely blown away. And how convincing these stories are of all these people. It's just, you'll, you won't believe it. And I just really hope that your audience just goes to see it on the 31st uh, Wednesday. So it airs on the 31st Wednesday. It's in theaters all across the country, selected theaters. You go to ikilljfk.com, you can find the theater near you. And now keep in mind, every theater in these things, they are only like 100 seats, these theaters. So it's not you know maybe there's two showings with a hundred seats so it's not like there's like where you play the thousands of people it's just like you 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 don't have a lot of tickets so so I just clicked get tickets and it said find a theater
0: and it's got uh it's got all the states
1: yeah all the states it's got around between two hundred and fifty I think and three hundred theaters. So it's
0: going to play – it's playing a bunch of places in California. Absolutely. Buena Park, Monrovia, Redlands, San Clemente, San Francisco. L.A. San Francisco, Live. Uh, Foothills, Fresno, Irvine, Los Angeles, San Diego, Sacramento, West Covina. It's playing everywhere. This is like a wide release.
1: Yeah, but it's also playing in every state everywhere. So, you know, from Boston, cities like Boston, Chicago, and all over the place. Are we going to – email my current manager hey judy don't
0: worry about it as i as I, as as I, you're as i'm looking through i get an email about this promo video i'm doing for my hawaii date and and, and voice uh, email brought up i've got to email my current manager <laughs> um so uh us that's a fu- that's a lot of theaters. Just having, this, these are the things that this is sad. That this is where my brain goes. How much money could you make off of it
1: if it if it sells out in every theater? Well, as you know, I never answer things directly. Give um, me a, give me a give no, me but, a- but but I just want to share this with you. <laughs> what? Um, I know you think differently of me, but I think you could share to your au- audience this. When it came to this decision with you in every turn, listen, do it for the money or do it for the respect? What did I tell you to do? Do it for the respect. Always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The money money always comes. So when you do something like this, when you do a special event theatrical presentation, and we can talk about the business side, which is what Industry Standard does – these are very different kind of deals. What you do is you... I wanted to do it as a special event because it's Kennedy's 100th birthday on Monday. Yeah. And I wanted to do it around that. And when you do a special event theatrical presentation, it's like... I guess if you're a comedian, it's like doing a four-wall deal. It's like going into a club and they will take the bar and the concessions and will give you a percentage of the door. Yeah. And so what happens in these situations is that when you do a documentary, (laughs) like, look, the documentary with Tom Hanks and Amy Schumer, Tom Hanks and Amy Schumer, they probably make $30 million a film or more. But you do a documentary, you're like, "Hey, listen, we have six dollars a bucket of chicken and a subway token. Will you come and do?" It? Of course, I love yeah. documentaries. <laughs> so documentaries, it's not like you're killing yourself and spending a, a shitload of money on them. And so, in this particular situation, to answer your question, how much money can you make if it does well? You can just figure it out. You know how what the ticket prices are between ten and fifteen dollars, and if. You know, figure out a door deal that you would do at a comedy club yeah. and it would be similar to that. And then just if it does well, you make good money, and if it doesn't do well, you don't make good money. But you don't lose any money. In right. other words, if you did a door deal at a comedy club and they flew you out there, if you did fifteen people, you wouldn't lose money. You just wouldn't make money. You're just your time. Yeah. And so, but if you do really well, you make money. You're like, how I did well. And so, and that's the great part about what you do a lot of times with door deals, which I assume you're, you're, uh, I presume you're doing now is that it's exciting to know you never know what's going to happen and it's all on you and it's all on your concept. In this case. I'm just hoping that people go to see it because I thought these stories were interesting and it was something I was proud of. And it's nice to know that. I wish I thought of the money. And if I told you that I was thinking of the money and thinking of how much I was going to make, as you know, I think you know me. And people say a lot of bad things about me. But I think one thing's for sure is that I am pure when it comes to telling every artist that – you do things that are great and the money will come. Yeah. Just and even if it doesn't come for that, they'll know you for doing something that was special and that was extraordinary and not ordinary. Yeah. And that's all I ever want to do. And and I know it's odd because I am a manager and I am a I do produce films and I do do TV and I do the podcast and I love managing. There's nothing greater than what happened with you and I. There's not. Yeah. it's it's one of the, and you talk about the proudest moments of my life. You, sitting across from you is very emotional for me because your career and our beginnings is is one of the proudest moments of my life. To go from a guy who is shitting into a pizza box at a fraternity to driving and having Will Smith pick you up and take you to pitch meetings and selling a show at the highest levels and to be a guy who a network says, hey, we don't want to test this guy. We want to test him, but you have a deal with him. It doesn't cost you any money. Just put him in. He's not going to get it. Just So what difference does it make? Five minutes, just have him walk in and do it. You don't even have to do any paperwork. And to get the pilot, those are the greatest I mean, no one can take those away from you and no one can take them away from me because it's the ultimate manager artist relationship. Yeah. My talent merges with your talent and it's symbiotic and it flows and greatness happens.
0: You're, 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 you're a very, and I haven't, I've only had two managers. Well, I've had a few managers within the two managers I've had technically. Um, but uh, your management style is – I always say when people go, hey, you used to work with Barry. What, what's your opinion of Barry? <laughs> I always said he can make magic happen. really can out of nowhere. I was a guy working the door, and I got a six-figure deal. And your advice was always spot on. Uh, t- say nothing. Get it. Uh, what was it? Don't give information. Get it. Yeah, I just, you know... Don't tell the comics at the club how much money you just made. They'll hate you. I wish I had taken
1: that advice more seriously. But it's you know, it's it's really... It's really... I don't want to say it's hard being a manager. That's bad to say. It's not... It's it, Everything's hard that, that, that gets you to where you need to go. But the hard part for your manager now, uh, Judy or myself or anybody is that there's no management college yeah we all learn you know if if you want to be a comedian right now you can study hours and hours and hours of footage all over the web you know study greatness imitate greatness become great if you want to be a comedian now, you can leapfrog over other people if you study the timing and how people tell a joke and how they their presence is and how they their cadence. And you can figure out and jump to the top of the class. For Judy and myself and other managers starting out, there's no videotape of managers doing deals there's no videotape on how to talk to the president of comedy central yeah and part of my podcast which i i didn't understand because i'm constantly as you know tearing myself down to psychologically get myself to the place where i want to be i'm always saying to myself it's over Uh, this is your last day. It's, you know, you're, if you don't get your shit together, you're not going to, when the times are the best or when the times are the worst, because that drives me, that always gets me where I want to go. I don't recommend that for everybody, (laughs) Yeah. but that's for me, what works for me. And when I started my podcast, I, everybody told me, don't do it. Everybody, uh, you know, because probably one person told me to do it was Jay Moore. I was about to say this, yeah. And and, uh, he was a very big inspiration in it. And the reason why is because obviously I know where all the bodies are buried. Mm -hmm. Obviously I know all the stories. Obviously I know all the details about what goes on and how deals are made and what happened here and why this happened there. And so when I started it, I was actually not thinking – Clearly, because it wasn't about that I didn't want to do it. It was, God, would people sit down with me? And I thought, who's the first person I'm going to ask? And and I asked Doug Herzog, who was at the time the president of Viacom Entertainment, overseeing Comedy Central and, and Spike and TV Land. And in five minutes, he said yes. And once you get somebody like that who says yes, then all my relationships... We're in a situation where they would come in. And since then, I've interviewed, I think, over 30 network presidents. But I've also, you know, somebody like Kevin Hart, who doesn't, as you know, doesn't really do podcasts, did a stern interview. And I didn't ask him for three years because I thought to myself, "Eh, fuck, he's just going to say no. Again, going against my philosophy, what to do. And when I was in Montreal the last time, I'm like, he's here. Fuck it. Why don't I just ask him? five minutes later anything you want just tell me when you want to do it and he sat with me for two hours was well the boston the- comedy club was super important to his development yeah absolutely it was The
0: one place he could definitely get on because he was urban but he was not like meaning he was black but he and and a, a lot of times the the by the way that was that was a club that simply catered i don't know why but it, i think new york catered to urban audiences but all the it they only had one night that was Black Night. It was uh, Sunday. Sunday night with Run Talent by
1: Talent, a guy named Talent who by the way, if you want to google one of the funniest fucking comedians in the world, uh look up Talent. He's unbelievable. That place was so fucking hot on Sunday nights. Always sold out. Always sold out. Uh what was uh
0: has has doing your podcast? Has that are you are you still managing? Of course, And I always ask that, but I know that you've got so much going on in your own career. I go, your, your roster can't be as big as it was when I met you.
1: No, no, I I only work with about you know fifteen people. I don't want. Who do you work I've, with? I'm not going to tell you on this Why podcast. Why? Get information never <laughs> it. Because then you'll have somebody on that couch back shitting on me oh you represent that guy what a fucking hack that
0: guy is (laughs) unbelievable uh do you feel like doing your podcast and sitting down with
1: the basically the, the titans of the industry has made you a better manager absolutely i can you know when you can get anybody on the phone you know one of the greatest moments of asking and i ask everybody There's only a few guests I've had where somebody have helped me get them. One of them, by the way, was Gary Marshall, a former intern of mine helped me get Gary Marshall. That was his last interview he ever did, and it was amazing. And I asked him so many times, he said no, and there was an intern that worked for me that did like like a guest, I don't know what you call it, had one line in a movie of his. And she asked him, and he said yes. But for the most part, I ask everybody, but one of my greatest things was i i called guy who's very intimidating a guy named chris albrecht who started by the way one of my favorite
0: interviews you did one of my favorite interviews it was so great and and, and chris albrecht uh let's start backwards with him he uh created what we know as
1: hbo like the sopranos right yes and before that when he started his career he started as a doorman at the improv in 44th and 9th yes He's also running
0: S.T.A.R.S. right now, right? That's right. right. He's the by the way, my favorite TV show is uh, is
1: Black Sails. So thank you, Chris Albrecht. So at the time, I don't want to get into all the details because he'd be mad at me, but it was the darkest time of his career, and he'd just gotten the job at S.T.A.R.S., and you know a lot of shit went down in his life, and the job at HBO, which he stopped doing, and he wasn't doing anything. And I called him up and I said, and first of all, I had a mixed relationship with him because I had reached out to him about doing a deal with Dave Chappelle and he this, flew this, us at the time or yeah, a, long the, time a long time ago? Yeah, this a long time ago. And he flew us both out and offered this, so us this incredible overall deal for our specials and a and a show and... And comic relief appearances, and it was this amazing deal. And then Disney offered uh, Dave and Jim Brewer a sitcom buddies. together, buddies. And uh, they Dave didn't end up doing the HBO deal. And Chris Albrook was mad at me for ten years, probably. Really? And he probably I had a a really hard relationship with him. I did a few things with him. I did, uh, but he, you know, a tourgasm I did with him. I did Dane specials, but didn't do a lot. Because he felt I felt he didn't trust me or he felt poorly about what happened, so I call him up to do the podcast, and things had just gone down in his life personally that were bad and rough
0: this is this is him lo- losing the job at HBO.
1: Yes. Okay. And uh, I know what you're talking about. And if you circ- want to find out, Google
0: it. But yeah. I would never bring it back up.
1: Yeah, I don't want to bring it up. But so I call him up. I say, Chris, I want to ask you a favor. He's like, what, What's up, Bear? What do you need? And it's again, you call somebody and they call you on the phone back of that level. That's when I say, you you know, you think of yourself a certain way. Like I'm like an anorexic who looks in the mirror and thinks they're fat. You know, I don't I don't think to myself. I'm that guy that people think I am. But then when you call Chris Albrecht and he calls you back in like 10 minutes, then you're like, OK, well, maybe I'm I'm wrong about this. So I ask him, I get on the phone. And I say, Chris, I just want to ask you a favor. I'm doing this new podcast, Industry Standard, uh, these long form interviews. I, I, I'd love to uh, have you do this. And immediately said, Barry, I can't fucking do it. I'm not doing it. There's no way I'm doing it. You know what I've just been through. I can't do it. It's never going to happen. I turned down Time Magazine. I turned down Entertainment Weekly. I am not doing an interview. And it's weird, you know, as a manager, you have this negotiating style, and it's like a comic. It's improvisational. You deal with what's thrown at you, and psychologically, your mind snaps on the best way to handle certain people, like hecklers. And in that instance, I did something I'd never done before. I didn't say anything.
0: Oh bullshit! That was my you. That Barry, that is you. That is you to a T. This is my always been in my impression of you. What's up, Papa? And I go not much. How you doing? And you go and then yeah, good. And then it's silent. And then I go cool. And you're like. But that's not, that's not a negotiation. No, but that's you. You always you. Uh, my impression of you has always been: uh, get information, don't give it. And I would. I have told you this before. I would. I would end up telling you shit I'd never tell anyone. Not bad. I, I how was last night? It was good. It was good. I drank too much. I I stayed out partying. I. <laughs> I ended up getting a limo, and I, I did coke. I haven't done coke in a long time.
1: And then you'd go, "Well, Sal, so buddy, I, you know." <laughs> but that's a, so you didn't say anything. Didn't you? say anything. So five seconds go by, ten seconds go by, fifteen seconds go by, twenty seconds go by. I, I just don't say anything, and he doesn't say anything, and I'm just like a game of like I don't know what you call it, uh, where two cars are going towards each other, and then all of a sudden he just said. Ah, fuck it! All right, I'll do your show. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a big one because that was somebody who everybody, you know, loves and respects, yeah, yeah, and yeah. and he's like a really a fascinating interview, powerful guy. And and the fact that you listen to these things, well, I listen to, yeah, listen
0: to that. I listen to, uh, to, a bunch of yours because I was, I, I do find the um, business side of this fascinating. I think the older I've gotten, back in the day, I was just like, I don't want to know about it. And now I look at it and I go, things have changed so much. I want to know how many, you know, radio is a perfect example of the way I look at the business. I go in there and I look at, and I'm sure you can see it this way too, I look at all the equipment and all the cubicles and all the office spaces and the corner office and all the interns and all the staff and I know what ads are. I know how much ads are. And so... I think how many people don't need to be here like how many people do I not need in this room and I know what you you can make off a podcast and I know what you can make off a radio station and I start then you start going okay let's look at let's look at television how many people don't need to be here and I think there was a period where I was like I was like sizzle it down who don't we need there's a lot of people you don't need a lot and I started going okay uh, that is um the 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 uh was Darwin's theory of the strongest or whatever? That is, the, you're just going all the organs you don't you need in your body you just stop using. I don't have a tail anymore. I don't need my appendix. You know, like I don't know if you need your appendix or you don't. Your gallbladder or whatever. Do you and, need your beard? And I need my beard. <laughs> if not, I, my chin. It looks like my real chin has balls. <laughs> uh, and so I start looking that way in television, but I and and in everything in the in the comedy business. You know, the comedy business is one of the one of the few things with very little fat. Uh, I believe, is that I cannot negotiate my own deals. I don't want to. I don't want to be a part of that. I want to tell someone what I want, and I want them to get it. And that's it. And that's all. And then I need the person that books the club. I need someone to book a feature. I need the staff. I need the general manager. I need an agent. I need a manager to talk to my agent about that, and that's it. And it's it's one of the few businesses. It's why it's sustained for so long, and it's in such a, a resurgence right now. Theaters are an interesting place because I and I'd love to hear your opinion on this because I know what the breakdown is. And I start going oh well, the this
1: breakdown is- isn't all the same all over and there's different theaters where you can get different deals and that's where people make the mistake and even agents and they'd probably hate me to say this agents are like comedians in a way that there is ones of different levels and different experiences. Who have different knowledges. Yeah. And there's comedians out there who, when an elder statesman comes to them and says, I think you should do this, they nod their head and then they walk away and say, fuck that guy. Yeah. And there's young agents out there working for artists who want to do their own thing, want to have their fingerprint, don't want any advice from anybody else. And not everybody knows the deals, and not everybody knows what can happen in the best possible deals. People think, well, if I do a theater, uh, i got to pay 15% to the promoter. Well, no, you don't. There's promoters that work for less than 15%. Well, they're not the good ones. Not true. But you, you're in a situation where you don't want to say that. Because people don't want to be in a position where they're like, oh, my God, how can you say that, Barry, when this person is that? Personally, for me, again, the respect outlasts cash. I'd rather use the guy who takes 15%, who is a behemoth, who does great work and I trust and I'm excited about, rather than... The guy who takes 10% who I don't know as well, and I don't know his history or how well he's going to do, or he doesn't have as big a track yeah. record. So these are decisions you make. There's also deals like, let's say, for artists out there, like, let's take uh, uh, the Wilbur Theater in Boston, let's Bill, take Bill Blumenreich. Example. This is a great example. This is a guy who took a risk. and People don't know this about, this, you know, Every anybody listening out there, you're not going to get anywhere unless you take risks. And sometimes the risk you can lose everything. Bill Blumenreich put everything he had, and he bought the Wilbur Theater. Okay, this historic what, theater in what Boston. E- what year? This is, I think, twelve or thirteen years ago. Okay. Okay. And maybe, this is, I think, at the time, uh, the the com- the connection. Was he closed. had the comedy connection in Faneuil Hall. Uh, he was paying. Tens of thousands of dollars for the location in Faneuil Hall. They wanted to renegotiate and up his rent to probably six figures. The comedy uh, um, connection was a great um, fucking club. Great club. And he came up with the idea that, hmm, I think comedy's getting hot. Let me create a small theater that will be big enough for people to play but can be fragmented if I have to and do acts that don't do as much business. And so he, got the, he bought the, the theater, he had to kill himself to get the liquor license, which he didn't have for a long time, and it was touch and go. He was about to lose everything. And this is one of the most successful guys I've ever known in my life, but he believed in the concept. And the concept was, is that get comedians in, and when they come in, give them a reasonable amount of money that you say is my costs. So my costs are X amount of dollars. They're not some crazy theater costs like some theaters charge 20 25 When I did Whitney Cummings' first special, she wanted to do it from this really incredible theater, this new theater in Washington, D.C., which escapes me now, the Shakespearean Theater. The rent was $42,000 for one night. Okay? How many does it seat? I don't know. I probably seated like about 500 or 750 people, but it was maybe a thousand. I doubt it, but that's not the point. The point is when you're an artist, there's a lot of factors. There's the factor. What's the rent for the theater? Okay. What is the rent for the theater? If it's a high rent, is it in a place where there's heavy traffic? If it's a low rent, is it going to be in a place that's nobody's going to come to see you? You're a destination act. Okay, you, it doesn't matter where you are. People are going to come see you. So you're in an advantage. That's why here in Los Angeles, you'll see artists playing the forum in LA. You're like, why the fuck are these people playing the forum? Uh, cause it's half the money of the staple center and the people are coming to them anyway. Yeah. And they've already got respect. They don't need the respect of the staple center. Yeah. When I was working with Dane cook, I don't want to do the forum. I needed him to get the respect of the Staples Center be the first comedian in history to sell out and work at the Staples Center. Yeah. So I told him the numbers of the Staples Center. I told him the numbers of the Forum. But Dane Cook back then really shrewd. He's like, fuck it. I'm going to make money. I want to be in a place where I get respect. I don't care if I spend the money. That's why he did a special at Madison Square Garden, Boston Garden. He didn't want to do it at some venue that didn't have respect, and you pay for that. You don't have to do that anymore. You're already there. Dane wasn't, didn't have the proven audience that he was going for back then, and that was the story. So when you're doing a theater, it's important for the artist – Research. Have an intern. Do whatever. If people aren't going to do it for you, have them call every theater. What's the rent? What's the security? What's the venue charge that they tack on? How much is it charged for them to bring in a curtain? The curtain. Uh, Ticketmaster. Is there a kickback to Ticketmaster? Is that coming to you or is that going to the promoter? Well, that's the one thing that I think most comics are getting hip to. They're like, wait, what's this
0: surcharge? There's a surcharge on every ticket. And you're like, who gets that? And then you start doing the math. You're like, wait, so th- those venues are putting on a surcharge for, I mean, I guess it's the computer system that they've built to buy tickets online, which that makes sense. If you build a thing to put sell tickets online, you definitely should make money for that. But it, that's the one where comics are like, what if I got rid of my, I like, you know, because it is weird when you do $25 tickets, $35 tickets, and then people are like, your ticket came
1: out to be like $42. And you're like, you know, you're like whoa. Yeah, because they're charging all these extras on there. But if you, the bigger you get as an artist, the more you can control situations. Like one of the things that I would do if I were you, and here I'm, I'm, I don't know if you want me to share this with you or not. Hundred percent, Barry, because I, a- because I, I could, you know, there could be a hit on me from part of your representation. One of the things that I think every artist should try once, and there's nothing wrong with doing it. Yeah. Is picking a city where you haven't been in a while, finding a venue that's a non-ticket master venue, that's an independent venue, mm-hmm. selling the tickets on your website only. Nobody gets it's your fans, they go to your website, they buy the tickets, no surcharges, no nothing, and then see what happens. And then you pay the money for the theater. You pay their security. Yeah. You pay their box office person to give out the tickets there, and see what happens. Just one time. Why not? Why not try that as yeah, an have artist? Have you seen someone do that? Possibly. And what was the result? Success. Really? Why not? It, you're why? But the thing that it's again, it's like the JFK thing. Nobody wants to talk about it. Well, shit, Barry, why are you talking about that? I mean, promoters are going to be pissed off. I mean, you know, promoters, this is their livelihood. I mean, this is how they make their money. You're going to take money out of their pocket. Ticketmaster, Barry, what are you doing? I mean, they're like the leader of tickets. You can't do that. That's how they make their money and whatever. Uh, The venue chart, you can't do that thing with the venue. But the thing is, why not try it? one you try it in a comedy club yeah many comedians do a deal they're like hey i'll take tuesday nights at the laugh factory i'll take the door you take the bar yeah why not in a theater why not give it a shot and i guarantee you uh i also you know i remember telling um i remember telling people this as well and actually chappelle found a company to do this which i thought was really fascinating because i didn't even know it existed you know, I said that there should be a show. People should try one show at a comedy club that's a non-phone show. Oh, now a lot of people are doing and that. And so, this Chappelle's is the, one that started. That yeah, thing. He, yeah. He, he started. He found a company that takes your phones, puts them in zip locks, and they're all coded and they're at the front. But back when I talked about it, there wasn't one. Yeah, and I said why, why, people should just try one cell phone-free show. And see, you know, maybe charge a little bit less for it, um, and just you know, see what happens. Yeah. And now a lot of people are doing that. Ari did it for his last special.
0: It's it's a really fascinating insight. Where do you see? Uh, where where do you see the business going? Like, I, I know I have my predictions. Like, where do you see it going? It's changed
1: drastically from when you started. Well, I think that the great part about what you're doing and what artists have a chance to do is they have the chance to forge their own destiny. That's the exciting part. Yeah. The scary part is America will tell you and the world will tell you whether you suck oh, or yeah. whether you're great or not. So that's the scary part. You kill yourself, you work hard, you put the content out there, and nobody watches it. That is bone crushing because it lets you know, holy shit, I'm not doing the right thing. I got to start over that's again. It's not always accurate, though. Like there is, you know, uh,
0: like there is, there was a, you can put out content, say, say, uh, and I, you know, I love everyone at comedy central, so I'm not shitting on comedy central. Say Mark Norman's special goes on comedy central. They are at once at midnight, the night night of premieres, maybe three more times that year. That's not saying it's great content. That's not saying that if great content automatically gets discovered and that, What he did must, you know, he's not, it didn't change his life. He's not headlining uh, theaters. It just is people aren't
1: tuning into Comedy Central the way they used to. Let me tell you something. Yeah. If Mark Norman's special is, holy shit, I can't fucking believe what that guy is doing. It's fucking LeBron James other level. And that special gets a number at midnight. On a Thursday, I guarantee you that special is going to be airing every week. Okay. I did a Houdini documentary for the History I Channel. That, yeah. Okay. I'm not again comedy guy. My uncle was the number one expert on Houdini. Owned the water torture case. Hold on,
0: hold on. I'm going to stop you right now. This is uh, th- I, this is where we disagree. I believe that for a number of different variables, great content doesn't get discovered. Uh, perfect example. Uh, the first deal we did was with Will Smith. Great script. We all loved it. And Doug Herzog got fired from Fox. Uh, Sandy Sandy something. Shuren. Sandy mm-hmm. Lyman. Sandy something. Sandy took over and killed all of Doug's projects. So, okay, number one. Travel Channel uh, has had probably f- five presidents while I was there. The last one was going out and... We did, a, we did a revamp of Birth the Conqueror. No one was at the helm at the time. No one was giving notes, and it was fucking phenomenal. It was phenomenal. New president came in. Her name's not on it, she, and you know this in this business. If you're a new president and there's projects that are in the queue, and, and, they've, and you need to find air dates for them, you don't, you don't, it doesn't behoove you to have them be a success. You want your projects and your new team. They fired everyone at Travel Channel. You want your team to have the successes. So they buried it. No promo. Not one commercial. They buried it. Now, that show got buried. It was a failure, right? In, in what you're saying. Uh, someone starts putting clips of Bert the Conqueror, the season they didn't air online. And within five days, it gets 120 million views. So clearly... It's great content because by your standards, everyone found it and it stood out. But the way this television set is set up is done now. It, there's so many fucking factors in whether or not
1: someone finds great content. But Bert, you just, I, I'm not trying to take you down here, but you no. just made an argument and then put it back to me. Yeah. Your content got 120 million views. Yes. It doesn't matter where it got the views. It got the views. Yeah. Yeah, I know, but I'm saying like, I'm saying like. Your podcast is fractions below an audience and sometimes above Adam Carolla. The guy has been working his whole fucking life in radio. He spit blood for the audio portion of this business. Yeah. And you, in three, four, five years are right there. Yeah, yeah. Content. They found you. They, found they you. love you. They
0: found you but 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 but, but can you
1: agree? 375,000 podcasts. They found you. But can't you agree with me that the and this is the original question,
0: where do you see to, to entertain the television and this business going is that the old system has set it up so that 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 Someone like Mark Norman doesn't own a special. Comedy Central does, so they decide that someone they decide what clip goes up. And they so do. He could have great content, but say there's a fucking game four of the of the the semifinals of the NBA playoff the night that he's his things airing, and it goes long, goes into double overtime or something.
1: Right? Then make another fucking special.
0: Okay. Yeah, I
1: agree with that. I agree with that. You when know, I, you talk about you talk about the way it was. Let's just set it up for the audience, you know, in my day, which is shocking when I had rabbit ears on my television and there were three networks. Yes. And the and television ended at 11 o'clock at night with Snow and the National Anthem. Yeah. Okay. Right now, whatever you think the business changing, it sucks. This is that. This is the greatest time in the world for any actor actress comedian yes Yes. anybody i agree mark norman if you're listening you wouldn't get a fucking shot 50 years ago 25 years ago, when there was just HBO, you wouldn't have been able to even sniff a special. So you now you have a chance to get a special, and you have a chance to be amazing, and you're either going to be amazing or you're not. And that's uh-huh. not an insult to Mark Norman. That's, that is an extremely accurate... On, you know, 20 years ago, years ago on HBO, there was Seinfeld, Chris Rock, and one other person. Three specials on HBO. Yeah. Now you can sneeze. And by the time you sneeze, you miss 10 (laughs) specials streaming. But the difference is it doesn't matter if there's a thousand specials or one special. Yeah. The cream rises. And whether you want to admit it or not, because you're a humble guy, you rose. You did it. You did it your way. And it could be argued that when I first met you... Not a hard worker. <laughs>
0: that could, not only could be argued, it could be put on my gravestone.
1: <laughs> okay. It could be argued, when I first met you, a guy who uh, didn't spend his time wisely when it came to the business. At all. and And, and now... You've totally changed your course of action and you're working really hard. We're here, you know, like a, on a holiday uh, doing a podcast and, and, and that's what it's all about. And that's why I just want to share with your audience why you're successful is, 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 look, I'm going to go in a way you're not going to want me to go. Why aren't you as successful as an actor as you are a comedian or a podcaster? It's very simple. Every week, you're working on your podcasting. Every week, you're working on multiple shows as a stand-up. Every week, how many times are you putting the camera on and doing a scene in front of a camera and studying it and looking at it and looking at other performances and how they did it? Every week, how how many shows are you working on developing and creating and putting out there? You're not because you get the shit kicked out of you by these executives and you're like, fuck it. I want to write, produce, direct. Uh, I want to star in my own shit, and nobody's giving me notes. There's a reason why all the things you're doing that make you 99.999% of your money are successful. It's because no one's writing you notes. No one's studying it. No one's telling you what you have to do. You're doing it on your own with your instincts. And that's the difference about how the business is now. Before you had to take notes, before Larry David, when NBC told him he couldn't do the masturbation episode, he's throwing a fucking chair through the glass of the offices of NBC. You know, this is what it's all about. Why Chappelle went to Africa. What, you know, why so many people lose their minds, you know, Michael Strahan and Kelly Lee—or not Kelly Lee, Kathy Lee—all these things, all the politics, even in 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 our government. You know, Donald Trump, the highest level of the land. Well, I fired Comey because of his job performance. Oh well, you said this the other day, and he said this, and he said this. Even the highest level of government, he's got other people answering, doing things he can't control. Yeah. He, he's the guy who should be able to control shit. He can't control anything. He can't control himself. And he certainly can't control when people make a mistake and say what they do. Yeah. You can, because you're in control of everything. And if you're an artist out there or anything you do, it's something I preach all the time. It's like, just keep going, keep creating, keep doing it. And if you do something that, and I know you're going to laugh at me, is undeniable, you're going to never be denied and you're not being denied. You're doing it. When I started my podcast, again, I, you know, I'm I'm older than you. I started this podcast. You know how many views I had my first day? Who knows? Probably zero. Um, zero people were listening. Uh, but for some reason that week it just snowballed and snowballed and snowballed. And then Jay Moore calls me into the radio station and he says, come here. I said, I don't have to tell You're coming here. And he shows me. And it was number three in comedy that week that when I launched. He says, you're going to drop, Barry. It's going to drop, but this is a great sign. And I said, I can't believe this. This is impossible. But I didn't promote. I'm not a promoter. I only know how to promote for other people. I don't know how to do it for myself. Yeah. And he said, well, whatever it is, Barry, people are listening, and this is a good sign. And then I'll never forget. It's one of the funniest moments between an artist. I've represented him for 25, 26 years. Are you still working with him? Yeah, and so I, I, I go out and he calls me back in the office and he squares me up and he puts his hands, you know somebody puts their hands on your shoulders and looks you straight in the eyes and he looks at me and he says, cats. And I said, yeah, Jay. He said, uh, listen, man, uh, you're not supposed to do better than your fucking clients. And he kissed me on the back of the neck and ran out. It was like Fredo or something <laughs> like that or whatever it was, some godfather <laughs> moment. But, uh, but the point is, is that I didn't know. I just wanted to do something great. I didn't know the world speaks. They tell you what the fact that you listen and you think and you tell people it's great. And people of the emails that I get from people, even people who hate me, who no, write me and tell me that they they listen to it. It's it's just it's, it, what
0: I love about it. It's, it's is uh, it's inspiring, and it's it's one of the things that you just said that I that I love is that. Um, Yeah, I don't. I'm I'm done with notes. I'm. I'm not. I make what I make. If you like what I make, I said this to a documentary crew that was here earlier today. I make what I make. It's based out of honesty. That's all I can do. If you don't like it, I can't help it. I'm sorry. Go find something else. I don't know what to do. This is the kitchen. I make shit out of. It's a little messy. Sometimes it's drunk, but it's what I do. And you know, it's like with. I've had a number of clips go viral, and I started thinking. Man, if I ran these by people, they just everyone's so set up to say no. I, I watch people say no, and I fuck, I fucking lose it. I lose it on a. I was on. A, I was on a call one time. The Person knows what I'm talking about. I won't say his name, <laughs> but I was on a call one time, and I and and I had this idea, and he said, a friend of mine said no, and I I spoke extremely disrespectfully because I was like, no one fucking tells me no. Like, don't
1: trust me. Just give it a shot, and then you know like but i get but again you're in there's people that there's a way to say what that guy said all of he could have said was and one of my things i say all the time is listen i'm just one guy i'm just telling you i if you do you want my opinion uh no i don't or yes i do if you yeah. do okay i don't think out of 100 ideas i think the percentage of this idea going are probably less, in my opinion, based on my experience than this other idea you have. I'm not saying it won't go. Anything can go. But in my experience and thought process, I think has, this has the least chance of going. Then you wouldn't have yelled at me. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I he probably
0: said it a lot nicer than, I don't think that's going to work. He probably said it like you said it. But I was I was at a point where it's like, I've been doing so much stuff just by myself. Like promoting shows all the all the videos I post to promote shows I just shot two before you came here all the videos I shoot to promote shows that I put on Instagram and Facebook and then geotarget I want people in my corner that say things I don't know like the my 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 manager and my my business manager were like we can geo target shows let's see if it works GeoTarget, I have a nice show this year that I hadn't sold out I'm in a show and I've done and I did the Wilbur and i and and, but uh, those videos, all the creative stuff, I don't want any notes. I'm done with notes. It's, it, and, and that's what I loved about Birth Conqueror last season. In, and they started re airing it, I think, recently because of, of the success it's had. <laughs> but uh, there were no notes. There were no fucking notes to the point when I showed it to the, another director friend of mine. He was like, they're never going to let you air this. And I was like,
1: no one's at the helm. And then turns out they tried to bury it. But, But you said something fascinating about your shows and the geo targeting and, and being on the phone with people. And, and again, it's your, it, it, you know, your team, it was so great what you just said. It was so profound. Tell me something. I don't know. Yeah. If you're going to work with me, tell me something, bring something to the fucking table that I don't know or no one at this call knows. And that's how you stay representing people. And that's how you stay relevant in the business. There's no one who's going to, you know, I was hanging out, you know, and I'm I'm so honored that Chappelle will, you know, they'll hang out with me, they'll have me come to shows and we'll be in the dressing room and we'll talk or I was just with them at, uh, at Staples Center. You know, these are great things. I worked with him for eight years, but sometimes you think, God, Barry, you're fired. You know, does he, what does he think of you? Does he think you're a bad guy? Does he think you're not relevant? Does he think you're not worthy of your opinion? But yet I was there in the crowd in New York when he had a special show trying out his SNL material. And I got to be in the dressing room with him. And what an honor. And a guy, again, a guy who's like a genius. Yeah. But I'm only there for one reason. It's like I only get paid for one fucking thing. My opinion. Yeah. And hopefully I bring something to the table just like I did with you that added something that no one in that team could have added at the time that helped. And that's what and what you're doing as an artist is the same thing. The reason why you're so successful besides a number of different reasons is you're bringing something to your audience that they can't get from other people, even people who you consider to be geniuses, they might not be able to get from from Chris Rock what they get from you. Yep. Maybe they love Chris Rock's material better than yours, but you're more accessible, and you'll meet with them, and you'll you know you'll you're more attainable to be around, and maybe they like that a little bit better. People, I, I've said it a number of times uh
0: what I'll I always say from a fan's perspective what I get from Bill Burr I don't get from David Attell but David Attell gives me something Bill Burr can't give me and, and and I like him exactly the same so I think I think you're right I think it's it's many different things uh and yeah and your your opinion has always been uh valuable it, I, it always was one of the things I learned a great deal about this business was watching you and Dane work together Dane was you know I've, I've talked to Dane, and uh, he wants to come on the podcast, but he's very busy, and uh, and I totally understand that. I can't. I know I'm busy. I can't imagine what his schedule looks like on his calendar.
1: Um, but this isn't an indictment of Dane. Yeah, but I, I forget you said that about Dane because you know I I, I obviously work with him for 17 years. The greatest times of my life. Uh, such a great time together. Dane Cook never, ever said a discouraging word to me, never was disrespectful to me, never did anything out of line to me as a person. Had a great relationship with him, amazing. And I still do. And I still feel like I could call him anytime. You know, he invited me over his house for lunch, you know. But just to put it all on the table, no one is too busy to do a podcast. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so whenever anybody writes you back and says they're too busy to do podcasts, all that means is they're trying to be nice to say, "Look, I'm not really ready to sit down yet, and when I'm ready, I'll let you know." But they don't want to say that because it sounds insulting. Yeah. So they want to let you know that things are crazy and they want to concentrate on these things. Yeah. It's 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 the it's the kindest way that somebody can say, "Buddy, I love you." I will do your show but let me call you when I'm ready to do it.
0: Okay. Well, then that's what he said to me and I didn't
1: realize it. But one of the
0: things I learned from uh from watching you two work was that Dane was Dane was going to succeed regardless of who tried to slow him down. He was going in a direction. He did not take notes. He did his own thing. Hey, uh websites are $50,000, okay? I think that's a bad idea, bad investment of your money, because who wants a website? I want a website. I want to be the first guy with a website, and I want it to look like the people who designed the national securities website, Like, and he did it. Uh, I want to do Torgasm. I, to, uh, I want to sell out Madison Square Garden. I want to do this. I want to do that. One of the things I've always been curious about with Dane's career is did, like, I was always wondering why didn't he do his movie first? Like, like, he did everything his own way. He did everything his way. It was really a... F- and, and you only added to his... You only... Dane was eating. And he was eating like a fucking savage. And you just simply brought options to the table and said, have you tried olives? And you, he's like, no, just try them. Tell me if you like them. I don't like the look of them. I know, but try them. And then... When it got to the place where everyone was like, "We love watching you eat," Dane was like, "I'm going to try cooking," and and everyone's like, and "This might be a bad analogy, but like, I always wondered why he didn't make the movie he wanted to make, his movie, the one he wrote. Why didn't he write his own movie, that first movie? Why didn't that? Because that's what he was doing with uh, with Spiral, with everything he did was so him. And then when he got plugged in with Jessica Simpson to Employee of the Year, I was like. That's someone's version of Dane. That's what they want. That's not,
1: you know, does that make sense? Absolutely. And I will explain this. First of all, for the audience, just so they know, uh, Dane, first one comedy guy to build a website, he had me, uh, there weren't website builders. He had me reach out to a guy whose website he loved, which was the U.S. Army yeah. website. I called the guy. He wants twenty five thousand dollars to build the website. I try to negotiate with him, and I consider myself a great negotiator. The price went up. <laughs> the price went up. The guy was like pissed off. He wouldn't. He just would not. It was the worst negotiating. I finally got him back to twenty five thousand. Yeah. And uh, and Dane said, "Well, you know, that's all I have in my bank account right now, but I want to put it into this." Yeah. And I said, Well, if you believe in this so much, then, you know, uh, I, I don't know anything about websites, but I will help you get it. And I negotiated the deal, and he orchestrated the building of it, and it was amazing. And just so you know, when Bert talks about Spiral, again, Dane, the first comedian that I know of that made like a short. Film kind of thing on his own with his own money. Back, by the way, this and is back putting, then. This is before phones and everything. Yeah, it, it cost like forty-seven thousand dollars to do this short film. But he wanted to do a dramatic film because he couldn't get in on any dramatic roles. He wants something to show to people. And do you want to know something? That was a waste. Of his money for nine and a half years. Until? Until. Uh, Zach- I was, by the
0: way, hold on one second.
1: I was in his office. By the way, this,
0: this, I was in his office the day. My office? Or- the, no, in his office. Dane's office. In, in his place uh, yeah. on, on yeah. Laurel, the day he got that call. And he said to me, you, I'll tell you, uh, you, I'll let you finish your statement, but he said to me, he was in that chair. Uh, that and, and he just spun around. We were just going to play guitars. And by the way, this is the same day he said, you should really look into this thing called MySpace. And I was like, pass. Uh, he spun <laughs> around and he goes, you know what I love about this business? It's like a lottery ticket. He's like, every day is like a lottery ticket. Remember Spiral? I go, yeah. And he goes, apparently someone
1: in Asia saw it. And yeah. So what happens was th- there were two things that happened. Now, it can be disputed the Asia story yeah. because because there was a movie that uh, we wanted to do called The Touch with Michelle Yeoh done yeah. by Ang Lee in China after 9-11, and, um, but they didn't know that he could do drama and comedy, and it was something we sent, and I, I really believe that that did help him get that gig, but I don't believe it was the deciding factor but what the deciding factor on something was when Zach Brack, Braff fell out of a movie with Kevin Costner, Demi Moore, and William Hurt called Mr. Brooks. By the way, if Dane, if you, if I doubt you're listening,
0: but if anyone wants to say, hey, they're calling you out on the podcast, do it now. He was
1: phenomenal in that fucking movie. One of the greatest performances of a comedian in a dramatic movie that he I've ever seen. In my head, I was like, "Dude, run away from comedy!
0: You fucking nailed it!" <laughs> like, "Fuck, you do stand up your whole life, but Jesus Christ, he was!" I saw it on a plane, and I was like, "I was like, I know Dane." Start watching
1: it, and I'm like, "This is fucking amazing!" And so Zach Brack fell, fell out, and and they, in these situations, it's one of those amazing situations in artists, and it happens rarely in television pilots. It happened actually once this year where they fire somebody or somebody falls out and a decision has to be made in like 24 to 48 hours. And that's when you have a real advantage as a comedian because there's a short list or any actor and you're in, you get in there and you have like a one in eight shot or a one in five shot of getting it. There's no test deals. There's nothing they got to go now. And so sent it to Dane's agent, he hand-delivered it over to Kevin Costner's house and played it at Kevin Costner's house, and Kevin Costner said, that's the guy, I'll take that guy. And so that $47,000, although it didn't pay off in nine years, he made it back in a big way, and it was his most respected and greatest acting performance that I've ever seen him do in my life and I I loved it and it was incredible and that just shows you again he took risks but that was that's my question I'd ask about Dan and you were there for the whole path you already asked that question I didn't answer it so you're asking why And this is a great metaphor for what you talked about. Nobody's noting you. Nobody's doing anything, and you're successful. Dane was successful all the way through. One note, and then the place where he went, every television file he did, there were notes and everything, and he couldn't really get his voice down. It was frustrating, and so you're asking why he did the first movie employee of the month, and those the movies thereafter. What happens is, is that you know things started snowballing, and all of a sudden. I know there's no such thing as all of a sudden. I'm sorry. But to the industry's perspective, all of a sudden, he presses a button and he sells out two shows at Boston Garden. And then the film world is like, fuck, we got to do something. And I remember before his album dropped, Retaliation, I went to all the publicists. They all passed. They didn't want to work with him. And, uh, And I remember telling him that. And he said, Barry, I know what I have to do. I have to create a noise so big that Hollywood will have to listen. And I'll never forget that Boston Garden show, and he was there in front of me. says, watch, Barry, we're going to launch the tickets now. I'm going to press a button here and watch what happens. And within, like, literally 48 hours, it was completely sold out. And the guy who had never even done more than 500 seats in one show did a 20,000-seat or two shows in one night and and so oh, but but I, but all I want to know is what the paycheck for that is. <laughs> <laughs> well uh, you you can you can figure it out. you would uh you can figure it out. But in addition to the money HBO gave them. So that was the that was a big payday. But the point being is that is this is that so it all happens and then you know these movie companies come to you and they say, We want to do a deal with you, we got these great scripts, take a look at this, this, this and it's like we want to go now. If you like the script, we will go right now and make your movie. Wow. And so you have a choice. You can sit down and write your own movie then if you haven't written it by now, or you can go with what the best one that you feel they have for you. And and that's what he did. And unfortunately, well, I say unfortunately, look, the first the movies that he made, they made about between thirty and fifty million dollars at the box office, which, yeah. if you look at movies, is successful. But we're always looking at the movie that does a hundred million, a hundred and fifty, and that's the one that's really successful. Yeah. And so these were movies that had budgets of uh, of ten million, fifteen million. I think the last one with Kate Hudson and Alec Baldwin was like thirty million. But Kate Hudson, Alec Baldwin. Probably made 15 million between, you know, total. So there wasn't a lot of money in them, but they were just out there and, and look, it didn't, they didn't go the way you want them to, but it's an argument for what you said. And it's an argument for the kind of thing that Amy Schumer did, which she wrote, uh, train wreck. It sat on a shelf. I'm Sure. I'm sure she had to blow the dust off of it when Judd Apatow heard her on the Howard Stern show at the end of the interview and said, mm, "Never heard of this girl. I should bring her and meet with her." Yeah. And he gave him the script, and uh, and he loved it, and they did it. So she got to do her movie, and then she did Snatched, which I don't know if that was her movie or not. I don't no, know. It wasn't. It was not. Yeah. But it didn't. It was. You
0: know. It sounds like it sounds like everyone gets an opportunity. Everyone that. Everyone that blows up like that gets an opportunity to, to get a get a cash grab. It's almost like it's almost like they're letting you in the candy store, but you can only pick from this side.
1: Look, you know if you're a, if you're a fighting fan, yeah. whether you're a fighting fan of boxing or uh, you know the UFC or whatever it is, you, they're putting together the fight with Floyd Mayweather, the boxer, and Colin McGregor, the IFC guy. Yeah. I'm sorry, the UFC Colin guy. McGregor. Yeah, Colin McGregor. I'm so sorry. And so. Everybody can say what they want to say about it. But why is Floyd Mayweather doing that? He's a boxer. Why is Colin doing that? Connor. Connor. Sorry. <laughs> I'm thinking of Colin Quinn. I'm thinking of Jay Moore doing the impression of Colin Quinn. Why is Connor McGregor doing that? You know, the sad part is normally I would say editing, but Bird doesn't edit anything. And he does it his way, so now all my fuck-ups are in here. So the fact is, is that... Why is it happening? They're both at the top of their game. Mm-hmm. Why do they have to do it? They don't have to do it. But it's a money grab. A lot of people. It's you do things for the respect, or you do things for the cat. Why is look? I love Alec Baldwin. I did a movie with Alec Baldwin. I, I, I he's one of the greatest guys you'll ever meet. Why is he doing that? He's doing a game show with a microphone the size of a pencil that Gene Rayburn had, and. You know it's it's let's face it it's 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 joked about as the one of the most ridiculously simplistic game shows in the history of television yeah. why is he doing it? He's one of the greatest if just just open up your computer and YouTube Alec Baldwin, I am God. And watch him with George C. Scott and Nicole Kidman in that conference room. That's, that's and you'll so see great. one of the greatest act. And then after you're done with that, watch Alec Gull, uh, Alec Baldwin, uh, uh Coffee is for Closers. For closer. And watch that monologue. Jesus, you're watch right. Watch those two monologues back to back and tell me this guy isn't one of the greatest actors you've ever seen. Fucking amazing. But he's doing match game. He's not doing match game for the respect. You know what he is doing for the respect? SNL. He's making probably less money doing SNL than anything he's ever done in his life. Even if they, even if they were giving him a hundred thousand an episode to come in, which they're not, I doubt. Uh, you know, but let's pretend they were. Yeah, this guy makes millions of dollars doing what he does but he's doing the match game. He did the match game because they're paying him money. When you do the match game, when you do one of these syndicated shows, for those of you in the audience that might not know this, you can shoot 165 episodes if you want to in probably six weeks. You can do like four or five a day. Mm-hmm. And you just go and go and go and the celebrities come. They mix and match. And you can get all done and you can make millions of dollars. Louis Anderson... <laughs> Just to give you an example of what happened in the old days, Louie yeah. Anderson was doing great in TV and film. And then he decided to do Family Feud. And if I'm not mistaken, Louie made $6 million to do Family Feud. Okay, who, what comedian is going to turn down $6 million? You, but,
0: you, you You'd like to say we went in and took a meeting with Game Show Network. And uh, my m- one of my managers, Reg, is with me. And he was Reg like, Tireman, I love that guy. Reg Tireman's the best. And he goes, uh,
1: Connor Tireman.
0: <laughs> he goes, uh, he's like, uh, "Would you? You want to do a show for Game Show Network?" And I was like, "No, I don't want to do a game show. I told you I don't want to do television. I, I'm done with television." And he, and he's like, "All right." And he goes, "Well, we'll just take the meeting." So you never know. You, you say, "I say these defiant like I'm done with television," and then you know sometimes you get a good idea as uh, someone brings a good project you're like that sounds like a lot of fun Fuck it, i'll do it you know what i mean so but but you say this like going unless it's really great bring it to me so we take a meeting with game show network
1: and we talk and then i was like amy intercostal davis and barry nugent i think it was barry nugent great guy and then (laughs) barry he's like
0: uh he goes you know, I think you're really great. I think you'd be a great host. And in my head, I'm like, I'm not doing television, not doing television. And he goes, the great thing about Game Show Network is, you know, you only shoot for like a week and you walk with like $600,000. And I was like, oh, I'm totally into a game show. <laughs> like, I'm like, really? He's like, oh, yeah, we gang shoot them, but you get the you get paid per episode. And I'm like... Ah, and then I, I'm in the parking lot with Reg going, follow up, man. See if he wants to do a game show. And Reg is like, I thought you weren't doing television. And I was like, oh, that was before I found out how they shoot it.
1: <laughs> money grab.
0: Money grab. It's the money grab.
1: Yeah, even some syndicated talk shows, like when Kirk Fox did the test for Dr. Phil and Jay McGraw's company, yeah. uh, he shot 165 episodes, I think, in seven seven weeks. Yeah. And so so that's what happens sometimes, and that's why you see, you know, people like doing game shows now who never did them, and and you're wondering why they do them. Now, to be honest with you, I don't think that Alec Baldwin—let me rephrase this—I think the percentages of Alec Baldwin getting those great acting gigs like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, and and the movie where he had that famous I Am God speech, I think— the chances of those happen again are not going to be as great. Same with Anthony Anderson now, even though he's on Blackish after the great hosts, show, by the way. Yeah, it really and, is. Um, and but after he does this game show as well, I don't know. You know, you, you think to yourself when you go to a movie and you go in the IMAX, the big screen or whatever, do you want to see the guy who's hosting a game show? Do you believe him as the undercover cop? Yeah. I don't know if you do, and that's something to think about. Uh, and Louis Anderson, you look at him as an example, he really didn't get any film and television opportunities for, I think, 12 or 13 years after he hosted Family Feud until Louis C.K. and Zach Galifianakis said, you know, I think you'd be great as the mother. And, and, amazing. Then, and then he won the Emmy.
0: Yeah, and, and it was one of the, uh, it was one, you know, it was one of the, that cash versus respect, money versus respect, yeah, because if, if, you,
1: if, if you think that if Louis Anderson made a lot of money the first year doing that show, you're wrong. I mean, yeah. you don't – if you think – if you look at all the people on the show, Louis, which is, again, if you haven't watched that show, it, it, there's one scene that I think as a comedian and an actor and a producer and having a director of mind you should watch is the 7-minute and 32-second scene on YouTube – it says Louis CK fat girl. It's one camera, one shot, Louis CK fat girl, fat girl. Fat girl? Yeah, fat girl. I'm putting that in so I can watch it when you leave. Okay. And what it is is he shot this, he directed it, he wrote it. It's him and a girl and doing a scene on the I don't know what you call it, the Esplanade by the Statue of Liberty on in Manhattan. And it's it's amazing. He might have shot it 12 times. He might have shot it eight times, five, 15. But the scene you see is one shot, one camera the whole way. So if you don't think, as an artist, you can write, produce, direct, and self-produce, I'm not discounting what a genius Louis C.K. is because he is a genius. What I'm trying to say to you is that why not write, produce, and put something together yourself? This is one-third of a sitcom. I'm sorry, this is one-third of a half-hour comedy, seven and a half minutes. And so, and when you look at that, it shows you that you can do it, and yeah. you can put things together. And that's what
0: I, that's what I love about Louis. Is that and one of the stories I heard about Louis is uh, my buddy worked on that show uh, was that he was like no notes. That's I just want no notes. I want to make what I want to make. And then he started submitting tapes. He's like, Hey, can I get, can I get a few notes? Because like some notes are helpful.
1: <laughs> yeah, and if you think again, talking about actors. If you think that Robert Kelly and Nick DiPaolo and Jim Norton, if you think that any of those fucking guys are getting money for doing that show, you're sadly mistaken. They're making scale. So each one of them, if they're lucky, maybe they're making $978.50. And you know something? They would pay nine thousand dollars to be on that show because again respect outlasts cash you're not doing louis show for a money grab you're doing louis show because you get to be in the presence of a genius somebody who's doing great work who went in and said i'm doing it my way or it's the highway and if you do that the money follows that's
0: right i believe that i mean Burr and uh, Rogan sat, not sat me down, we just happened to all be sitting down, but it's better if I say they sat me down, because that's the way it felt, and uh, in the back of the comedy store, and they were like, how much money's enough? And I, was, I thought that we were all talking collectively, and I was like, I don't know, and they were like, you don't do Travel Channel, how much money do you need? And I was like, I told them my nut of what I needed to make a year, and they're like, you can make that on your stand-up and your podcast. I was like, well, I don't know. I had, you know, if if they overshoot, I, they start getting into pen, like penalty payments, and that my pay doubles a little bit, and and then I, and I think I, I really would like to make this, and they both just looked at me, two two guys, both both well off. Joe's seen all sides of this business and walked away from all of it to do what he does. Two guys I massively respect in this business as probably the the top when it comes to guys i would call for advice those two guys Stanhope. there's a handful of guys and they were like Tr- trust me trust me just do stand up and do your podcast you can make that nut we had a financial meeting uh with my business manager and my financial planner uh like two weeks ago whatever the first quarter was you know and i already made the nut for the year <laughs> and and i and I, I just and i they just had this conversation and i and i was like and i literally looked at it and I went you know what maybe i'll take some time off and write a movie maybe i'll i was like hey let's tour australia we not a, i mean it's good money but it's not you know you're it's not just doing the roads here and i was like i was like let's and then i was like let's not do theaters let's do clubs like going let's let's what do I want? I want to do another hour special. I want to be great. If I do theaters, I can only do one show a night, three shows a weekend, two shows a weekend probably. And then I was like, fuck it. Let's do six shows a weekend. Let's go to clubs and let's fucking love comedy. Let's love writing. Now, I've never been in a better place with writing than when I was younger. And I was like re- – when I was touring with Jay, that's when I was like hungry for comedy. Jay Moore. Jay, well, yeah, everyone knows who I'm talking about. But uh, I was hungry for comedy. Like just – starving and then i got in travel channel i just was like i was like oh i want to i want to i want to redo my house i want to like i was my I guess that was my cash grab i want to i mean i learned a lot about television but i was like i want
1: to i want to go to hawaii i want to go to italy i want to go to yeah and that's the thing that's amazing about our business and and uh i'm sorry that i forgot who reinforced this and said this as well but in music you if you're in music You're never going to hang out with Sting or Bono (laughs) or Steven Tyler or you're you're not going to do it. In comedy, you can have been doing comedy for six weeks and stand in the hallway of the improv and Chris Rock walks in. You can tap on the shoulder. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I just started comedy. What do you think of this joke? And he will take the time and he will talk to you and he will give you advice. It's the greatest thing. And the fact that Joe Rogan, who I have an enormous amount of respect for, and and Bill Burr who I just did uh, I just recorded a podcast with him and it was amazing. I can't wait till that uh runs. It was incredible. He's just, great. he just tore me just ripped me to shreds. It He's was the best. I never. I couldn't even get a word in edgewise. It was just he just completely uh, and he had so many insightful things that he said and he got I saw a side of him that I really uh didn't see. But when somebody like that gives you advice in any profession, if somebody sits down with you Why do they sit down with you? They're not sitting down with other people. They're sitting down with you because they believe in you and they see what you're doing and they respect what you're doing and they're trying to guide you. I don't think that Joe Rogan and Bill Burr are worried about you passing them or they wouldn't have had the conversation with you because I've always seen my act. (laughs) (laughs) but i'm saying that but they're saying it because they see that you're actually making a mark, you're making inroads and your act is getting much stronger and much better and always evolving. Now there are comedians that don't give certain comics the time of day cuz they are nervous that they're going to pass them. That happens sometimes. I yeah. think that, you know, and i don't know if it's nervousness, i would say like like for instance when i was working with Chappelle and he first came to New York, I found, and Chris Rock, who I have a great relationship with, I thought was going to be more um, embracing of Dave when he came in. Of
0: a a young, skinny black guy that is exactly cast type as him.
1: (laughs) I'd say Chris was, I'm not going to say he went out of his way to make Dave, he didn't. But I'm saying that he, on a scale of zero being the least... Embracing and supportive, and a hundred being the most. He wasn't zero, but he wasn't a hundred. Yeah. And then I, I never really understood it. And later on, when they became friends and really close, you kind of realize that you know you don't. You know, you're trying to hold on to your mantle. When I interviewed David Copperfield, it t- took me three years to get him to interview him. And this is something that I think for everybody in the business, it, it just. It shakes you, but it makes you understand, and it goes right to what you said. David Copperfield, for those of you who might not know, has been the number one magician in the world for 35 years. Okay, so imagine if you know anyone in the business that's been number one for 35 years in any profession. Yeah. Last year, last year he was number five biggest earning people in entertainment behind uh, Spielberg, Lucas, Oprah, Michael Jordan, and then David Copperfield. The guy is 60 years old. He owns 11 islands. He has a a house that's like a palatial, I don't even know what you call a museum, a mansion, and I'm sitting down with the guy, and I ask him, how many shows did you do last year? six hundred and thirty eight shows how is that two shows a day more than that probably yeah. who knows six hundred well, yeah you, yeah you figured. not more than that but some but what i'm saying is yeah. like if you had an off we six hundred and thirty eight shows i say i said to him, like, what are you what are you doing i mean you're you're just relaxed like, what you, and essentially what he said is this is that well you relax and then people pass you People, okay, I'm I'm gonna want to outwork everybody. I want to out. Oh, I'm always wow. evolving. I'm always doing a new act. You know, you don't see me doing the levitation anymore. You don't see me making the Statue of Liberty disappear. You know, people talk about comedians like Burr and Louis C.K. retiring their acts after they do them. David Copperfield was retiring his act. When he, way back 30 years ago, when he made the Statue of Liberty, he wasn't going around the cities, hey, let me close with the Statue of Liberty bit. <laughs> and so it's it just shows That would be
0: good, though, if he was in Omaha. He's like, you don't know this, but in New York, it's gone.
1: <laughs> but the fact is, is that it's a great metaphor for everybody in whatever business you're in. If you outwork everybody and you... And you constantly evolving, you got the best shot of of getting the first pick in the draft. Yeah, you know, and that's what it's all about, and that's what you're about, and that's what you're doing. And and, and I was going to wear flip flops today with no 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 socks, but I decided against <laughs> it. Now that there's a and knife on the coffee table, I'm actually. Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap this up. I have to go to Hawaii. So, uh, I'm honored that you did this with
0: me. No, Um, of course. I love you, Barry. I do. Without you, I don't know where I'd, I don't know if I'd be in this business. And that is the truth. uh, I've said that to you a number of times. Some of my favorite memories in this business I shared with
1: you. Um, and, uh, now when people are on this couch and they rip me a new asshole, do you like defend me or do you take me down?
0: No, oddly enough, the most, I (laughs) I realized this halfway through, if I know the person, like if I know them, know them. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll argue, I'll argue, but I'm not, I'm not, I, I am a, you said this to me a, a long time ago, I'm a person of least resistance, so a lot of times, like, uh, like with Bobby Kelly, if he said something, I would, I would challenge Bobby, um, i challenge Joe, Segura, Joey, Ari, uh, all, like, all my friends I'd, I'd challenge, but if, like, you know, um. When so, well, I'm trying to think of a, a good example, but like when, uh, when Jeff died, uh, you know, who uh, he, uh, he was upset with you. I, I, I think I it was the first time I had met Jeff. I'd met him a couple of times. like bumped into him, said hi. We had texted back and forth. We have a mutual friend that was really good, but I can, what I do is I try to see their point of view and go, no, I understand. Look, very, very candidly. You know, this there were, I had massive frustrations with you. Of course. Yeah. And so I understand what Jeff's saying. I, he'd, if he said something like you know he was sexually inappropriate with me, I would have definitely been like, "That's not Barry. You, that's definitely not Barry." Well, he is a good-looking guy. He's Jeff, a great-looking guy, but I can find I can find common ground in what he was frustrating about you.
1: Yeah, and I think you know I, I think Jeff's uh, an amazing guy. He's a fantastic and, and, guy who's got uh, a,
0: an amazing career ahead of him, and, and I think and I and you know I got to be dead honest with you, Barry. Until you start seeing. There's a gloss over that I'm sure you saw in Jeff's eyes when he first started working with you. Like, I got Barry Katz. I got Last Comic Standing. This this is this ship has sailed. I am I'm in movies in two years. I'm a, I'm funny as shit and I'm really good looking. And then one and then sometimes you can't get someone to return your call and the deal falls apart and you're back in your thing. Going fuck, man. It happened to me. I remember calling you up going, I need another. Uh, I need another. Uh, showcase I want to get another deal and you're like it doesn't happen like that and then you start getting frustrated and then you're like well what the fuck and so I mean and I think Jeff once you get all over that gloss in your eyes you go oh this is a job this is big boy time I need to fucking I need to start being more critical of everything which I think Jeff did and then uh, and he's doing fantastic oh, he's I think a... you, that needs to happen every comic happened with you and Chappelle it just happens that you find the one you find them first Barry you find them first, and you gloss them over like like that scene <laughs> in the movie where they where they all the sniff. children of the corn. What yeah, is you, you gloss them over, and you go, "This is amazing, Papa. <laughs> this only happened when stars align. <laughs> you are Hideo Nomo." <laughs> you remember that? I remember it, and I and and it wasn't until like it wasn't until for me, I think we worked ten years together. Yeah, and then I was just like, I just had a kid, and I and I and I was like fuck man i'm i need to do different things
1: and you know you just have happened to found a lot of us first yeah and again i have nothing bad to say about jeff Dye. i like him he's a great guy i'm sorry that he feels the way he does but you know as many people will tell you uh, if they're not saying anything bad about you you're doing something wrong and so the fact is is that yeah, when people say stuff about you that uh
0: is I don't think he said anything too bad. He does not I don't think he's a huge fan of you,
1: but No, but what I'm saying is, well, <laughs> regardless of whatever it is, that's, you know, people everybody has their way of handling things and if it means that you go on a public platform and you say things that aren't as flattering about somebody you know that's your choice, and that's how you live your life. And you know you can't judge it one way or the other. For me, it's like I'm not. I I don't wanna. I don't wanna have any animosity towards anybody. People could say that, and that's a wrong way of being. And they could say, Barry, I disagree with you. I don't think you should handle things that way. But I don't wanna. You've I don't wanna. Run, as long as I, I don't know. wanna run into Jeff Die. And like hold the grudge because maybe there's something that he said that or that might not be, or that you know, Bobby Kelly said. Well, I want to run into Bobby Kelly. Bobby and Kelly I, loves you. I, no, I know. Yeah, I'm just yeah. saying, I don't know. I'm just mentioning yeah, you just you it, because you mentioned because you mentioned Bobby no, Kelly. It,
0: yeah, but Bobby's gonna fucking call me and be like, bro, what did you tell Barry I said about him? <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: but I, <laughs> I want to run into I want to be in a position where when I'm in New York, Chappelle invites me to his show and has me hang in the dressing room with him i don't want anybody to feel like uncomfortable around me i want listen i'm going to say this to you and you know this about me and you're the first one who'll say it and maybe somebody like jeff doesn't understand it i want you to do well when you left i didn't wish you poorly i wanted you to have the biggest career ever yeah what do i care if you do i want you to do well when I know this sounds personal. When I got divorced, I want my wife to be happy. Yeah. I want my ex to be really, really happy. I want her to meet somebody. I want her to find a better life than maybe I was doing at the time or however it was. I want Jeff to be a big star. I want these people to do well. I have no I have no interest in them falling and 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 being a fucking heroin addict or or kicking the bucket. I want people to know that they do great things because if they do great things in my mind, you know if I were to say there was any selfish thought in my body in any bone in my body, it might be just in my own alone self evaluation like oh okay well i I saw something in them that they saw in me and other people are seeing that as well. So I guess I still got it and maybe I'll still be able to do this another day. You definitely
0: are. You're one of the few people in this business that's got it. And I, and and a testament is Jeff Dye is succeeding in leaps and bounds in ways that a lot of people would not – have not and will not succeed in this business. I am – I'm probably the happiest I've ever been as a stand up comedian and as an artist, your roster of talent who you won't say who you <laughs> represent except for Jay Moore. everyone's doing fantastic there I'm sure, and they're doing you look very at well. louis look at Chappelle, you look at i mean give just i know you i know you've done this in a meeting real quick give a list
1: of who you've represented the people that I started with their careers, yeah uh Chappelle, Tracy Morgan, Anthony Clark, Nick DiPaolo, Wanda Sykes, um, Mike Epps, Bill Burr. um, We've already talked about Jim Brewer, Jim Brewer, Jim Norton. um, There's Dane Cook. Dane Cook. There's you know Jay Moore, uh, Bill Bellamy, Jeff Ross, uh, Jeff Ross. I mean, the list is astounding. I mean, that's just a few of them. That's just
0: that's just off the top of your head.
1: And Whitney that, Cummings. Yeah, Whitney. Did you ever work with Amy Schumer as management? No, I never did. But she was on Last Comic Standing, which I was one of the producers Why did you on. Snag her because I had the sign. You didn't, a, you didn't think she had it? I had the sign a sixty-seven <laughs> page contract that said I wouldn't. I wasn't allowed to represent anybody on the show while they were on the show, and I wasn't allowed to participate in anything that uh, anybody that i did represent was on the show oh that sucks well
0: well i will just simply say i love you with like a brother you know that um and uh everyone go see his movie I, i will have talked about this at the very beginning uh but his movie is this wednesday this is i'm i am in uh hawaii right now this is sunday for you or monday morning you're probably hearing it monday morning is when you've listened to which it. is
1: jfk's 100th birthday happy yeah. birthday to jfk and the movie comes out this wednesday the 31st it's only one night only in selected theaters go to ikilledjfk.com you can find the theater near you check it out it'll blow you away and i guarantee you, it'll change your life forever and and thank you so much and your episode on industry standard was one of the greatest episodes. The, did ever. you
0: ever air the video of that? No. Why not? What, are I you d- saving it for a documentary? you son of a bitch?
1: I just didn't
0: know if you'd want that. I don't to- give a shit. Other than you telling how me how many times. Other have you- than the one part that I that in my head that bothered me is you go. When are you are you ready to admit you're an alcoholic? And I went what. I was like, Barry, you're not at my house. You don't know how much I drink. Did I say it that way? Yes. I went to Ari right after, and I was like, he was like, what's the matter? I was like, I need a drink. (laughs)
1: Now, do, you, do your fans, do they, you know, because you've done a lot of interviews, do they yeah. talk about that interview versus others or they don't care? No, they don't. They usually talk about. Because that was the one time you really, I really, you really got serious. It was incredible. Yeah, it was really, uh, it was a really good interview. It was
0: really fun. And you caught me at a very vulnerable time. I was going through, uh, I was going through, I was, I had said I was done doing shows on Travel Channel. I ended up doing another season of Birth Conquer. I think I signed that, I, I signed on to do it that week. And I knew it was going to be tough. And I was I was one of the heaviest I've been in a long time, and uh, and I was really felt like I was missing my family, like I was missing them growing up. And I'm here at a festival. I'm uh, not perform, not really into it, not passionate about it, not having done stand up a lot. And uh, and I was just, and I realized that I they're all my friends, but I was like, I don't, they're, I'm not doing anything good. I'm not writing anything good. I'm not passionate about it and then uh and the word must have gotten back to rogan and burr because they had a conversation with me like middle of birth conqueror i guess it was all over my face but uh but yeah and, and so then you caught me there and i was like i was it was i was very happy to see you and it was a cool production and i've always been a good talker i'm a really bad listener except for this episode this episode everyone's gonna be like that was fucking amazing way to shut the fuck up burt <laughs> no yeah but uh, check out that check out his podcast Industry Standard especially if you're interested in the entertainment business specifically comedy it is fucking fascinating it really is a fascinating podcast and Barry is a fascinating guy
1: thanks man i feel the same way about you you're an amazing man you got a beautiful family and it's just um to see you like this, it's just uh, it, it's one of the greatest joys of my life is to see how happy you are and how successful you are. Well, you
0: picked a winner, Barry, when you, when you saw me working the door at your club, and you came in on Wednesday night, and you sat in the back, and I handed you my scripts, and I did six minutes, and you were like, I think we can do something. And then Friday, you called up, and you're like, "You guy, David Tochterman's <laughs> coming in to see you. Can you do 10? I'll put you on wherever you want. And I went, yep. And then Saturday... You have a deal. (laughs) That's why I tell everyone, you can make magic happen. You
1: have to be a dream maker when you're a manager.
0: And you got to be a dreamer to be a comic. What a way to end this podcast. I love you, Barry. Love you, buddy. This episode was brought to you by The Machine.